The COVID-19 pandemic has turned daily life in Canada upside down. Elementary and high schools, colleges and universities have been shuttered. Public gatherings have been limited. Bars and casinos have been closed. And people everywhere have started working from home. I'm Monique Baudin, and this is 10-3. I will be helping with hosting during the coronavirus pandemic. Today, I speak with National Post health reporter Sharon Kirkey. You can subscribe to 10.3 on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening now. Please leave us a rating and a review and tell your friends about us. So Sharon, things have really changed a lot since we spoke last week. On the weekend, you wrote that we were waiting for someone to pull a fire alarm and get aggressive on social distancing. It seems like that has happened in almost all parts of the country. Could you talk about what has changed in Canada in the last week? Well, kind of where do we start? Um, life in Canada is changing very drastically. Um, since we last spoke, millions of people have been told to essentially shelter in place. And this morning, uh, Thursday morning, the Prime Minister said it could take week to months for these social distancing measures to be lifted. So in many cases, you know, in many provinces in Ontario, Quebec, Alberta, we're seeing, you know, schools and daycares closed, bars and restaurants and stores closed. Millions of people have been told to work from home if they can work from home. Many are out of work, at least temporarily. Um, you know, Canada and the U.S. will close their borders to non-essential travelers, the Prime Minister said today, starting probably Friday night. Um, yesterday, the Trudeau government announced uh, an $82 billion aid package. Um, you know, most of that, I think $55 billion is going towards extending tax deadlines. Only, you know, about $10 billion of that is an emergency care benefit so that no one is forced to work if they're sick or if they have to take care of a loved one. But, you know, people won't see that money mm -hmm. until April or May. So it's it's very distressing. Today we learned also that the number of cases, either uh, confirmed cases or presumed cases of COVID-19 in Canada is 772. We've got 10 deaths. So 772 cases, I mean, five days ago it was 341. So we've more than doubled in just five days. So, you know, this virus is, this disease is affecting pretty much everyone in every aspect of our lives. We've also, so far, most of the cases in Canada have been linked to travel. So people who are returning to Canada from other countries. But there's a lot of talk now about community transmission. And I was wondering if you could talk about what that is. Yeah, there's no question community transmission is occurring. Even the federal health minister, Patty Hajdu, today at this press conference acknowledged that we are starting to see considerable community transmission. And that's what's worrying, right? Because that means the cases aren't linked to any travel. Either you didn't travel yourself or you were not in contact with someone who has been traveling. And that's why we have these very aggressive social distancing measures, why we have governments, provinces, you know, um, closing schools, closing daycares, closing restaurants and bars. Social distancing means, you know, really minimizing contact people have with one another. So, you know, meaning maintaining that distance of six feet between you and other people. Um, the rough estimate now is that every person who gets infected goes on to infect two or three others. 
So it's all about slowing the spread of that virus, mm-hmm. right? So that we don't overwhelm hospitals with severe cases of COVID-19. And so the more community transmission there is, the more we risk doing just that. We, the more we risk just overwhelming our hospitals. And there are already serious concerns that we don't have or we won't have the number of ventilators or ICU care beds that we're going to need if we do see this sudden surge in severe cases. And currently now we're seeing about 10% of those who are infected do require admission to an intensive care unit. So there's really strong concern that we need this time, you know, this sort of lag time to prepare the system to cope with the, uh, the infections that we're going to see. Part of the problem, too, is that some of the people who actually have COVID-19 are asymptomatic, so they don't have any of the typical flu symptoms that we've been hearing about with this disease. How big a problem are these so-called silent spreaders? Yeah, you know, it's quite stark. There's a new study just out that looked at the outbreak in uh, mainland China in Wuhan, and they found that 9 out of 10 infections were spread by people who, like you say, were asymptomatic. Mm. They didn't have any symptoms of infection. They had no idea they were infected. And that's alarming or worrisome because it's hugely hard to contain the spread of a virus when people who are infected don't know themselves that they're infected. And again, that's why it's really important to to not just ra- you know to ramp up, first of all, testing so that we should be testing people, more people, as many people as we can to get a handle on just how much community infection there already is, but also to then, you know, identify those quote unquote silent spreaders and get them to isolate before they infect others. And because there's this concern that so many infected people are in fact flying under the radar, again, that just adds to, you know, the need to be doing these these social distancing things, you know, getting people to work from home if they can work from home, avoiding crowds, uh, you know, avoiding public transport if they can. We're seeing quite a range of that kind of uh, social distancing, right? The limiting public transit, schools being closed. In Quebec, for example, we're, in theory, supposed to have schools reopen in a week. Are we fooling ourselves that this can be over in just two or three weeks? Yeah, I think that's now sort of the general consensus among the experts, certainly the people I've been talking to. And even this morning, as I mentioned, the Prime Minister said, we're looking at potentially months I mean, there's some modeling out there that suggests we could be looking at this situation for a year or 18 months until, you know, a vaccine becomes available. And I guess the worry is, is that there's so much still unknown about the virus that causes COVID-19, you know, really how contagious is it? Um, and, 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 and even everything, you know, to its, its fatality rate and who's it striking most. I mean, just recently, there was a report out of the CDC showing that I think it was like 38% of the people who ended up in hospital when they looked at a sample of about 500 people, 38% of them were aged 20 to 54. Well, that's completely different from what we saw in the outbreak in China, where most of those who were hospitalized were quite quite a bit older. Um, so again, if we do see this virus sort of percolates for much longer than a couple of weeks or several months, what I'm hearing is that we may have to have these social distancing measures in place for some time, you know, bars closed, restaurants closed, schools closed, daycare closed, um, and and w- that we might be able to sort of lift them for a month or two, for example, say in the summer during warm weather when viruses like influenza tend not to spread as efficiently. So maybe lift the measures and then have people kind of 
return to some kind of normalcy and then have to reimpose them again as soon as we start to see any kind of surge in the number of cases. The thinking is, is that we'll, what we'll need is either a vaccine, and that's easily a year away, or herd immunity, sort of natural herd immunity. So we try to get herd immunity with vaccinating people, but natural herd immunity means people enough people are exposed to the virus that we get, say, 60% of people naturally immune to it. So that kind of slows its spread. But there's one report out of England, you know, that England's preparing for the virus to last until the spring of 2021 which is, you know, really kind of scary. But it's also very likely, too, that this, this virus will become yet another coronavirus that causes a common cold, and it'll persist forever. But what we're hoping is not to see, like, these dramatic surges or dramatic waves in infection. In uh, Quebec today, the Premier and our public health director both again reminded people to please stay home as much as possible. People are still going out, they're going shopping, people are getting together. If this goes on for months and months, how long do you think it'll be before people start resisting social distancing? Yeah, that's a a real worry. Um, The experts call that behavioral fatigue. So, you know, the idea that with all these shutdowns, you know, again, the idea is to make sure that the cases occur over a longer period of time, right, so that the health system isn't suddenly swamped. But there are fears that if the restrictions either happen too early or if they have to last for weeks or perhaps even months, that people become, you know, more and more uncooperative, right? More frustrated. They're not so vigilant. We saw it in SARS. You know, there were reports of young people partying during the SARS outbreak. And, you know, it's interesting because we have this kind of new rallying cry, flatten the curve, flatten the curve. Everybody's heard that Mm -hmm. phrase now. But Teresa Tam, the chief public health officer for Canada today said, it's not, we don't need to flatten the curve. We need to plank the curve. You know, we really need to pound it down. But, you know, people are really nervous because of what we're seeing happen in Italy, which has gone from like 100 cases to 30,000 cases in just weeks. And I think the the most recent figure is 3,000 deaths. In fact, the deaths in Italy now have surpassed the deaths that occurred in China. And there were pictures today of like military fleets carrying coffins of coronavirus victims out of, you know, towns. So, I mean, that's resonating with people as well. But there's, you know, also this idea that we can kind of shift everything to a a new entirely virtual world, you know, a new virtual space where we can all just, you know, hunker down and, and still go about our day in this virtual world. But, you know, it's not so simple. And it, you know, can also have you know, pretty major psychological fallout. I hear my friends talking about they're feeling anxious. There's kind of this low percolating amount of general anxiety. And, and, you know, not everyone has the ability to distance themselves from others, right? You know, people living in homeless shelters, people in nursing homes, people in long-term care homes. And there are, you know, real valid concerns that anxiety levels are going to go through the roof the longer the shutdowns persist, especially with people who already have underlying mental health issues. So it's a real trade-off, right, to avoid a rebound in transmissions, you know, a rebound in cases, you know, the risk that if we lift these measures, we might then see cases take off. But it's it's hard to imagine how people are going to tolerate staying home for potentially months. You know, France just today announced that 
anyone who wants to leave their house, they have to fill out these forms, right? They have to write mm-hmm. my name, my date of birth, the reason for why I'm leaving my home. I'm working, I'm traveling. I want to go for a jog in the park. And they've, you know, they've sent out 100,000 troops, police to, to enforce these, these forms. Uh, I mean, that's wild. And, and how long will people tolerate that? So there's new research out that shows that the virus can live on surfaces for up to 72 hours. What kind of an impact do you think that this new information is going to have on social distancing? Yeah, that was a paper that was just released that shows, as you say, COVID-19, as uh, so the virus that causes COVID-19 can is detectable in aerosols for up to three hours and 24 hours on cardboard and up to three days on plastic and stainless steel. So what that's giving us is a really better insight into just how long this virus can last outside the human body. You know, we had some ballpark figures, but it suggests it lasts longer than they originally expected it did. And also, so again, this just really reaffirms that public health messaging about, you know, avoiding close contact with anyone who's sick. I've read that a single cough can produce up to 3,000 tiny droplets containing the virus. And, you know, those droplets land on other people, they land on our clothes, they land on our surfaces, but even smaller ones, smaller particles can kind of linger in the air. So it, it all supports that advice to, you know, clean and disinfect things that we touch often like doorknobs, our mobile phones, you know, hard work surfaces, you know, and sneezing and coughing into the crook of our sleeves and and not our hands, just really being very careful about basic um, hygiene, hand hygiene, especially. We're hearing that different provinces are taking steps to try to prevent the health systems from being overrun. Could you talk a little bit about what the healthcare systems in Canada are doing? Yeah, you know, I think we talked a little bit about this last week about how the the you know, the real worry is that there's not a lot of surge capacity in our hospitals, meaning there's not a lot of empty beds, if any, or empty rooms. So now hospitals are really kind of scrambling to build up that surge capacity, right? They're they're trying to free up beds, especially ICU beds, uh, ventilated ICU beds. So They've started canceling non-urgent surgeries, even you know some cancer surgeries, uh, heart procedures, um, lung and kidney transplants, as I mentioned. Um, in Toronto, some of them are being put on hold temporarily. They're trying to get more ventilators. Um, I guess, but the worry is, you know, the experts I talk to who do these kind of, you know, back of the envelope calculations are worried that it doesn't, you know, it's, it doesn't look that great because there are currently about... 3,200 ICU beds in the country. So even if you say double that by canceling non-elective surgeries, you know, and moving people out of the hospital as quickly as you can, say you increase those beds by an extra 3,000 beds or maybe an extra 4,000 beds. Well, the the last official count, we had 5,000 ventilators right across the country. And if you estimate that let's say a quarter of the Canadian population is infected with COVID-19 in the coming months. So that's roughly what, that's 10 million people. And studies out of Italy and China say at least 5% of those people are going to need ICU care. Well, that means 500,000 people in Canada requiring an ICU bed and a ventilator. So if we don't have enough ventilator, who gets the ventilator, right? So people are saying we need to start having these very difficult conversations about rationing ICU care. You know, who gets 
to go to the ICU and who doesn't if we don't have adequate resources, if we do see what everybody is fearing, you know, the sudden surge in cases. You know, in Italy, they've just proposed that only those people with the best chance of surviving and those with the most years of life left, so meaning no one over 70 or 80, only those people should get access to ventilators if it comes down to, you know, four people are are very seriously ill, but we only have three ventilators who gets left behind. So those are the kind of decisions here that doctors maybe soon have to make, you know, which is a very difficult and, and, and fraught with all these moral and ethical dilemmas. Um, the federal health minister, again, just moments ago said that we could see hospitals or, or areas sharing resources, right? That it's not likely we'll, that we, it's likely that we'll see sort of sporadic outbreaks. Not everyone will be sick at one time. So if there's, say, a sudden surge in one region or one city, we could transfer ventilators from one area to, to another and maybe even staff. And maybe we could do that by military transport, but we would really need the political will to do that. And it could be, you know, a really logistical uh, challenge. When we spoke last week, kids were still going to school, people were going to work. There was, life was kind of normal still at that point. And we find ourselves in a completely different situation now. I was wondering, what do you think is next? Are we looking at more restricted social distancing? What should we be preparing ourselves for? You know, no one really knows. And and even the experts I speak to are really loath to kind of speculate because the situation is changing so dramatically. You know, certainly people are taking comfort from China, where yesterday they reported zero cases. So, no new infections. So, you know, China is three months out from when the outbreak took off in Wuhan. The thing is, China needs to go through two 14-day incubation periods of having no new cases before they can say, yeah, we're out of the woods now. And people estimate that Canada is about two to three weeks behind Italy, where the deaths, as I said, have now surpassed the deaths in China. So it's really hard to know what's going to happen. You know, will will the virus peter out in the summer months, like some some of these viruses tend to do? Will it just become another seasonal coronavirus, like, you know, the two other coronaviruses that calm the, cause a common cold? I mean, really long-term suppression, you know, long-term social distancing strategies, they may not be a workable option because it could just devastate the economy. You know, there's some modeling that says a three-month lockdown, um, that three months of population-wide social distancing might reduce deaths by up to half, you know, and reduce that really peak demand on hospitals that everybody's worried about by two-thirds. So that might be sufficient. But, you know, there's general agreement that public health interventions like this can be really disruptive you know, on societies. And, you know, really nothing like this has ever been attempted before at this scale. So it's not clear how, you know, societies are going to respond. But it's like German Chancellor Angela Merkel said, you know, we aren't doomed to helplessly watch this virus spread, that we are taking action. But, you know, there could be really difficult days ahead. Sharon, thank you very much for this. Oh, you're welcome, Monique. Ten Three is produced by Carson Jarama. Theme music is by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, Sharon Kirkey. I'm Monique Baudin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>